When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Everything Is Black and White podcast. It's a pleasure to say I'm joined by former Newcastle United player Gavin Peacock. He has his autobiography coming out next month and I will just grab it here. It's in the corner of my desk and uh, you guys can see it. I've had a little read and I have to say, Gavin, first off, it is a really good read. And what I really enjoy as well is that you don't have to um, necessarily be a follower of religion to enjoy this book and you mentioned that as well right off in, in, in the kind of the introduction there that this is a book about your life in religion but also about football as well yeah absolutely Andrew uh, great to be on the show with you um, thanks for having me yes no when I when I wrote the book uh, I wrote it with a broad audience in mind obviously uh, football fans uh, will in, enjoy it um, but you don't even have to be a football fan uh, you don't have to be a, a Christian, uh, but everyone will find something in there because I would describe it um, as a story of life in all of its complexities that's set against the backdrop of football, the beautiful game. Uh, but it's got the floodlight of my Christian faith shining upon it. Um, and so there's lots of human interest elements along the way as I touch on big issues of life. Um, so I'm very hopeful that it'll be a very different uh, football or sports biography, uh, though everyone's story is, is, is very valuable, of course. And I try and take people with me on a journey into from, from my beginnings and then into the world of professional football, into the dressing room, onto the training field, onto, onto match day, and also uh, off the field into my family into my mind and my heart as I'm thinking and processing things along the way as a professional footballer, as a pundit on match of the day, and then moving into uh, Christian ministry to, towards the end. So the book's called A Greater Glory from Pitch to Pulpit. And I, I suppose, first off, when the idea came about of writing this, your autobiography, what was your first thought? Because it can be quite daunting to some people to get everything down on, on, mm. onto paper. Mm. I had thought about doing it years before and, you know, often a, a footballer will retire and then think this is the time I'll put my uh, biography up. I mean, some do it when they're actually playing, if they're famous enough. Uh, but I, I figured, no, wait, it wasn't the right time. Uh, and then I got to age 50, uh, as a couple of years ago now, two or three years ago now. And I think 50 is a real milestone in life and half a century. And, and I look back then, I'd had this journey from pitch to pulpit uh, and I was able to then reflect and write with a certain maturity uh, on this on the issue so that there's a it's, it's definitely a, a richer story than I would have told with much more in it as of course more from age 35 to, to 50 uh, and so that's why I chose to write it uh, then I did it I wrote it on my own I didn't have a ghostwriter um, and I'd been reflecting I think everyone should this is my advice to everyone Everyone should write their life story, write their biography, even if you never get published, because 
life is worth reflecting on and everyone's story is is interesting people's stories are interesting when you get into them and so i'd been thinking about it for quite a while i'd spoken about my life and faith and all of these things at many events many of them in the northeast in the last few years as well uh, so i had kind of some framework in my mind but actually then sitting down and putting it into chapters and, and the way that I actually write it, like sometimes I'm in the present tense for, dr for drama in the, in the matches, you know, and then I go back to the third person. Uh, that, was, uh, that was the task. And uh, my wife was very helpful as I threw different ideas at her along the way. And she, she gave me some good bits of uh, advice. And it went through a, a couple of editing processes that I worked through. Uh, and I'm very, very pleased with the final product. No, you should be. It's a great read, like I say. And you mentioned there the, the way you described the matches. And when I got in touch with you and after I read the book, I said, you know, that is one of the things that really stands out. It is the way you describe the games. And obviously, we're in your Cast United podcast, but one of the things that stands out is right at the beginning, you described the FA Cup game against Manchester United at Wembley. And it's like you're walking as a reader through the, the old Wembley tunnel onto the pitch and you are just dragged along by your words of, how this game went and the emotions and you know the ups and downs of it and that goes throughout the book as well it's very emotive and you you are dragged along on that wave of what seems to be such a journey from club to club and then obviously the, the bigger elements of what went on in your in your in, in your life yes and i was as i wrote it i i tried to put put myself in into the shoes or uh for want of a better word, of the, of the person that would be reading it and the variety of people that would be reading it. So I wanted to convey that to them, what the feeling was like, the emotion, the, uh, the electric atmosphere, the pressure, the thrill of it all, uh, what it meant, uh, what I was thinking as a player and, and, and even as I was considering what the fans might have been thinking even at the time. Um, because football is just such a, it's a great sport of power and beauty but it's just so powerful in so many people's lives and it, and it is a very uh, uh, emotional thing and um and it contains these these great elements of of glory in life that we we all seek on that football field on a saturday together as fans as you come to identify with your team and it's about your city and it's about that sort of hope that you have uh placed upon your team on a Saturday. So I, I kind of really tr worked hard to try and uh, convey that um, and to keep the pace of the book going as well. Um, but there are many moments in there um, where it is quite emotional in terms of uh, moments of, of sadness as well as moments of success. Mm, it's a very open book. On to the, the Newcastle United element of it, I think the chapter that you've you've called it, the Black and White Roller Coaster, is, yeah. <laughs> is very apt. Um, it probably always will be because that is the perfect way to describe playing and supporting Newcastle United. And one of the things that stood out um, is just how connected you were to the Northeast, to Newcastle. You know, you had that family connection, um, which some people might not realise. They might just think, you know, you moved up from Bournemouth and that was it. But, you know, in the book, there's a picture of you as a, as a kid playing football in a, in a black and white shirt. You've got your, your grandfather. And it's, it's a really nice uh, insight into, into maybe why Newcastle United is more than just an ex-club for you. Yes. And if I uh, if you think about it in terms of the, the whole structure of the book, I, you know, I'll talk about my granddad and, and, and the Geordie roots there. 
uh, early on in the book. Then there's this sort of big central chapter, the black and white roller coaster in the middle of the book. And then uh, I talk about Newcastle at, at the end of the book. So there's just this sort of black and white thread running through the whole book. And of course, then that black and white thread runs through my life. It's in my DNA. My, my granddad, Tom, uh, and my nan, Lydia, uh, from South Shields, uh, very proud Geordies. My granddad, ex-World uh, War II veteran, served in the Royal Navy and a minesweeper. What about that for uh, serving your country? And he was a good, honest, humble man um, who had was mad Newcastle, watched the, uh, you know, Huey Gallagher, Jackie Milburn. And uh, so even though my dad, Keith, was a professional footballer and played for Charlton for 17 years, uh, my first kit was a Newcastle kit. So you see the picture in the in the book there. And I'm up in the northeast on the Heath playing with my cousins. And I've got, I'm in the front row. I'm proud as punch. I've got my little mini Newcastle kit on. I'm like a captain there. Little did I know that you know, 15 years later, I would actually be captain in the team. And the day I signed for for Newcastle, uh, my, no no one was more pleased than my granddad. My granddad's dead now, but no one was more pleased than my granddad, Tom. And he said, you know, if you sweat blood for their team, those fans will forgive you many things on the field. And never forgot those words. It uh, They rung true with me. And I think that was a reason that I got off to a good start with the fans. Plus, I had all my family around me in the northeast as well, so it was kind of like home from home. And the Newcastle fans, they took to me straight away, and th- there was just a great relationship, a love affair from from the start, from my point of view. And you mentioned there the words from your grandfather, which you know about kind of putting the extra effort and sweating the blood. And there's an interesting bit in the book where you say you kind of you trained after hours to become better at shooting practice, better at shooting, better at scoring goals. And I just thought that that's quite something because at that time you were already an established professional footballer you were making your name as a midfielder maybe an attacking number 10 and then you took the time to say do you know what I'm going to I'm not just going to improve I'm going to you know get better much better and I'm going to get to the highest level possible you know in terms of scoring more goals and I thought that was an excellent example to, to youngsters today you know when when they ask maybe yourself or they ask other professional footballers what can I do to to improve and that it's that extra commitment and desire that you need yeah i'd um you know i i came to newcastle and there was a true number nine there in mick quinn and i was watching him in training and i, I enjoyed playing with him on the field quinny was he was a goal scorer but it was good to play with he had a good football brain and he was strong and but i'd watch quinny carefully and i'd watch you know how he got into positions and how he had a ruthless streak uh, when he was in in the box, and and then I used to practice, and Quinny would be doing it as well. We'd practice after training, uh, and when Ozzy came, he was great. Spent hours, you know, on the training field with us, putting on sessions, and and I developed uh, particularly so at my time at Newcastle. The I was a midfielder, but I had the goal scoring instincts of a striker. Um, and, and I was ruthless in and around the box. And so, but that didn't come just overnight or just with watching. It came with the practice, like you say. And again, I talk in the book about uh, players like Gianfranco Zola when I was at Chelsea and just watching Zola after he'd come to Chelsea, go on after his first training session and take a bag of balls 
uh, and practice his free kicks for half an hour. Um, and this was someone who was at the very top of, of world football, even when, when he came to, to, to Chelsea. So just, again, an insight into what it takes to make it as a professional footballer, I, I talk about in the book, but also what it takes to stay there. And then when you consider somebody like uh, Alan Shearer, for instance, uh, you and, and then take into account the knockbacks he's had with, he had with injuries, you realise uh, it was absolutely magnificent what someone like that has done to stay at that level, at that goal-scoring premium, hardest thing to do in the game. Um, and to be so consistent is quite remarkable. And so he, he rightly has a statue uh, in, in Newcastle, even at a young age. So that's wonderful to see. You mentioned Aussie there, and obviously you played under James Smith as well, and then Kevin Keegan. But as a whole, you as a Newcastle United fan, you maybe don't realise just the the list of managers you played under, and you played under some great managers as well, the likes of Glenn Hoddle and Harry Redknapp as well. And I'm just wondering, I mean, even today, there's still massive names in terms of football. I know some have gone into punditry, some have gone away from the game, but it must have been amazing to have that kind of hit list of managers that you worked in there. Yeah, and you can add Jerry Francis onto that at QPR and Alan Kirbishley even for, I talk about a little time at the end there when I went to Charlton and in Premier League on loan, uh, top premiership manager, uh, Kerbs. Uh, yes, I mean, I look back on my, my managers would have made a great team of footballers in their heyday before I actually heart my boots. I put in the programme that all the managers I've played for and, and what a team they would have made. But yes, it, it's... Um, and in some ways, my book is a study of great leaders as well. There's that in there. You know, what makes great leaders? You talk about Keegan, the motivator of men, you know, that electric uh, personality. You talk about Hoddle, the, the great visionary uh, of what he did at, uh, at Chelsea. You know, the Jerry Francis, this tactician uh, and, a, and a real good leader of men. And Harry, going back to Bournemouth days, Harry Redknapp, just bright, young, inventive, but buying and selling players could spot a really good player. Um, and then there's my dad as well, Keith, who was manager at Gillingham uh, for many years in the 1980s and brought through the likes of uh, Tony Castrina, Steve Bruce, you know, current Newcastle manager, of course, was I, I was in my early teens going to Priestfield Stadium, watching a young Brucey uh, just having phenomenal matches at age 19 for, for Gillingham. And I ended up playing for Gillingham for a, uh, a year or so and actually my it was my dad that, that bought me so even that aspect of my dad who was a, an excellent manager but playing for your dad um, there's there's not too many have done it but there are some that have done it and uh, like Jamie Redknapp did it for Harry Redknapp for a while the Cloughs did it um, and that's an interesting thing but I learned from all of those great managers Aussie would be another one uh, wonderful bringing young players through I learned certain things and uh, put them into practice in my uh, in my career uh, as a footballer, also took that on uh, afterwards in terms of principles of leadership and succeeding in my BBC work, Match of the Day, Pundit, um, and even thinking of leadership now in, in the church and what I do, you're still, you're still leading people. And these uh, elements like, uh, I think you're getting back to Newcastle and Keegan, somebody once said about Kevin Keegan that he was the kind of captain uh, and leader that w if you could give no more, he would pick you up and carry you. And that's just a great principle of leadership. You know, it's just, 
is a kind of sacrificial leadership that goes the extra mile that everyone regards as kind of noble and good. And you can put that into practice in any walk of life. Most certainly. I mean, there's loads of nice little stories and, uh, you know, stories about Kevin and the way he handled yourself. We don't want to give too much away because obviously we would like people to go out and, and purchase the book. But there are some great stories. And I suppose we can mention one or two. I mean, one that does stand out is that uh, that last uh, game against Leicester City on the final day of the season. Um, I still think those that were there and remember it, um, I was only one, so I, I, I had to go back on YouTube and uh, research that, which I did many years ago. But I think for those who remember it in the moment, it'll still stand out as one of the most bizarre days in Newcastle United's history. I mean, you know, the, <laughs> the own goal alone is just utterly yeah. bizarre. And every time I watch it, I still can't quite believe what happened. Yes, it was just quite the game. Obviously, we'd, uh, we'd got a result against Portsmouth uh, the previous week where Dave Kelly won the goal. But we still went into that game believing we need to, do, we need to get a result here. Uh, and the pressure was just immense. So in the book, I, I revert back to present tense and take us through a few pages of, of what, what it was like in the game as, I'm, as, we're play, as you're reading it, it's as if you're playing it. And uh, yeah, I mean, the pressure was huge. You know, I, the following year we had pressure at the other end of the table to, to, to see us over the line for promotion. But this other pressure at the, at the other end is just massive. And uh, 5,000 Geordie fans there in the corner out singing the Leicester home fans, you know. Um, and then if we did, if we'd, uh, if we got relegated, we'd have gone down to the third tier for the first time in Newcastle's history. So there was that pressure as well. Um, and then we, we go a goal up. Obviously, I get the goal. And, um, and then we'd given away leads so many times in the past. Of course, it was bound to happen. Walsh equalises. And then there's this... The thing is as well... Andrew, we didn't know. Think about it. There weren't the mo mobile phones as, as uh, prevalent there as well. So people didn't know what were the other results. Do we need a point? Is a point enough when the equaliser comes in? Should we hold out for a point? Do we need to go for a win? I'm shouting at the bench, Gaffer, what do we do? Uh, there's No one really knows. And then Tommy Wright's picked the ball up, punted it downfield, a massive kick. As I've looked back, I was looking back at lots of videos as I was writing the book just to kind of get you know, make sure everything was accurate in my mind again. There's a massive kick from Tommy and I'm chasing now. My uh, socks around my ankles, cramp is gripping my calves and I'm chasing off the ball and I think I'm going to get this. And if, as long as I get onto it, I feel like I'm going to score. And then Walsh is chasing me. One of his, his big long legs has just dived in and he's poked it there for a second. I think, oh no, he's poked it away from him. Poked it past his own goalie. Um, and then the, the Leicester fans come on the field. The game's over now. We've won. We're safe. I'm like, yes, but I've seen all the Leicester fans coming on the field. I'm peeling away towards the Geordie fans in the corner. And now they've started to come on the field to, to celebrate, but, the Leicester, but also confront the Leicester fans that are coming at them. And I'm in the middle, furthest I could be from the tunnel. And I then had to make it somehow across that field uh, to get to the tunnel, jumped on Steve Watson. It was just uh, euphoria. Uh, what a what a day it ended up being. It was it was like getting promotion in the sense of the feeling of euphoria that day. And of course, so many Newcastle fans over the years remember that day as so pivotal. And they were there, or they watched it, or they've heard about it. They've been told by their their mums and dads that were at the game if they were kids. 
uh, that to be there that day or to to watch it um, was was something special. One of the things that stands out when you write it is that beforehand you were confident, you know, in yourself that you were going to score that, and Kevin was, you know, says, you know, we'll survive this and then we'll we'll, we'll go on and be successful. I'm just wondering how doesn't the pressure get to you because we're looking at maybe Newcastle. Um, in present day, and you're looking at the players that don't seem to be confident in themselves, don't seem to be maybe have that fight of passion. How, from your point of view, back then looking in that dressing room, did you put your spirits up, and how were you so confident that everything was gonna was gonna be alright? Kevin was a big part of that because he was so good at keeping you positive even after you'd had a bad result. So he never shirked telling you off or giving you criticism, but the next training session, it'll be buzzing. Come on, let's go. Next thing. You can't do anything about the last game. And I'm sure he knew when he came to Newcastle that he'd probably go to the wire. Although he probably <laughs> didn't realise it would go quite to the last seconds of the game, uh, of, this, of that last game of the season. Uh, so Kevin was very much because you, you look to your leader right you look to your leaders around you on the field and then you're ultimately your leader is, is your manager so with his belief he was that uh, all great leaders can make you believe that you can do something you didn't think you could do before they came that's the great one of the arts of leadership and they show you how to get there as well so they don't just cast the vision they show you how to get there and I think Kevin knew, you know, we will survive and then we will take off. And he probably looked at the team and thought, we're going to let goals in and we're going to lose games, but we can win games. And we can win games because we had me and Kelly, Dave Kelly, that could score goals. You've got goal scorers like that. You, you've got, you can win games. It's going to get you three pointers that you, that you need. Plus, we had enough character in the team. You know, uh, we had the, the Brocks and the Liam O'Briens and, and the Ray Ransons and the, uh, you know, the Tommy Wrights and th those kind of guys uh, that that would keep going and they would have a they would have a battle and uh, even if we weren't playing we weren't playing the best we keep going we had a little bit of experience there of course who did he bring in that really helped us big killer um, you know Brian Kilcline was a massive presence uh, sometimes people can forget although it's hard to forget that beard. Um, what a character Big Killer was because he was past his best in terms of his career. He was old, older then, but such a big personality, uh, such a good leader on, on the field, great guy, and and people like that help keep us in the division and, and get us the results that we that we needed. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I think uh, Kevin was obviously intrinsic in that and gave us the belief we needed to, to, to stay up. I didn't realise, and this is probably my part again. I'll just mention that I was I was only about one or two at that time. But I didn't realise you captain Newcastle as well until I read read it in the book there. Mm, yeah, captain of the, the promotion season. I mean, Killer was like I think club captain, and I was team captain. Put it like that. You know, Killer wasn't playing so much as well then, so uh, I captained the team uh, quite a lot that season. Uh, in fact, I think most of the season until I got injured for the last. Uh, three or four weeks of the season or, or more. Um, so, yeah, I mean, catching in Newcastle, one of the biggest honours of my, my life. I still see a, a clip. I think it might have been the first game I captained the team. Uh, it might have been West Ham in that promotion season. It may have been West Ham at home. It was on telly. 
um, and I and I scored in the, in the game as well. And I'm uh, th- there's a clip I think of me coming out the tunnel, and I think we only had like a little tape around the arm. There wasn't a proper nice armband then, you know. But I've got the ball in my hand, the armband on, and I kind of like I take a deep breath as I come out the tunnel. Is that you know you hear the the noise of St James's Park, and I'm but I'm captain of the team, you know, and it just to me, I know I'm looking at that on a, on video and thinking that breath in is just like it doesn't get much better than this type of thing, leading Newcastle out. So yeah, it was just one of the great honours of my career to to captain Newcastle United Football Club, and um, always I think when you put that armband on, it helps you run a, an extra mile in the game. Would you say that would be your proudest moment in Newcastle, walking out with that armband on? I, I mean, one one of them for sure. I mean, obviously the goal against uh, Leicester, um, obviously getting promotion uh, to the Premier League. These are these are just great moments of uh, of glory. And I mean, I can even go back to my debut uh, against Leicester. I mean, I funny enough, Leicester plays a big part in my Newcastle career because it's the first game I play. It's that crucial game to keep us up and it's the last game I play uh the the, the big uh game where we we beat them at St James's Park last game of the season by a shed load of goals and we'd already won the championship so um but that but my debut uh just come from Bournemouth you know and I know I'm joining a big club in Newcastle we're away at Leicester and I walk in the dressing room and I see my eight number eight shirt black and white hanging up on the peg and that is a thrill just to see that shirt with my number eight. Um, that's going to be my number. And then we go out for the warm up, and the fans are in the corner, that same corner as they were in the, the, a year or two years later when we had the crucial game to keep us up. And they're roaring and cheering the name. And I'm only just just signed, you know. Um, so I, that was a proud moment to pull on that black and white shirt for, for the first time uh, as a Newcastle professional player. Although I was a mini professional when I was six years old on the heath up in the northeast with my cousins. Brilliant stuff. I mean, there's like I said, there's plenty of stories, and we'll not give them away, but there's a lovely one about Rob Lee. There's a, a really nice moment when you meet a certain Hollywood star in Marbella. Again, we'll we'll keep that uh, the names off that because it's 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 something worth reading. And what I did like as well is um you, we mentioned Kevin Keegan and the kind of man he was, the manager he was. And obviously, at the time you left, you'd gone through some really, um, you know, troubling times off the field with the birth of your your, your son, uh, Jake. And for you to go to Kevin and say, look, we would like to move back down south to be closer to the family. And Kevin clearly didn't want to let you go, but he understood that family comes first. And it's just a sign of what a great man he was, or is, rather. Definitely. Yeah, I do talk about that in the book because... Some people say that, you know, to be a to be a winner in life, you, you can't be compassionate because that's too soft. But I don't agree with that. Um, and I think Kevin proves the point. You know, he was brilliant with me. Jake was born. And, you know, again, there's a big part of the book where I talk about that whole incident um, and the pain and the emotion of it all. And, and Kev, Kevin was great calling me up all the time, concerned about my wife, concerned about the baby. And then when I said to him about thinking about moving to London to be close to my wife's mother, and we got some obviously some challenges here, extra challenges here. Um, he said he he wanted me to stay, but realised if 
my wife wasn't happy and family wasn't happy, I wouldn't play him breast football. He knew he was bringing in Beersley. Uh, he knew that me, Cole, Clark, and Beersley would would you know gel well together in some kind of formation. Um, but he also knew that you know there's no one player that's that's bigger than the football club and that Newcastle United will go on. And so all those things combined, Kevin was fantastic. Didn't outprice me. And uh, and Glenn Hoddle, uh, who'd wanted to buy me a year before when he was Swindon Town manager, um, he'd wanted to buy me then. Uh, he can just the right timing. And I mean, there's a lovely moment in the book where someone drops off a Geordie passport for Jake, and I'm just wondering, does he still use it today? <laughs> well, I tell you what. Here's the thing. Jake is now a professional Muay Thai fighter. Um, so he owns his own gym in Calgary, here in Alberta, in Canada, where we live. Um, uh, he's 27 now. He's married, and uh, they just had their first baby, which is our first grandchild, little Charlie, Charlie Peacock. He's seven uh, seven weeks old, so we don't know if he's going to be a footballer or a fighter yet because following in his dad's footsteps or his, his granddad and his great-granddad's footsteps, who knows. Um, but Jake, remarkable story of, of Jake, you know, and Newcastle fans will, who remember that incident will remember, oh, yeah, that's the reason that, that Gavin left and uh, 27 years ago now. And to become a professional Muay Thai fighter with one hand is the story of perseverance in adversity. And he's really good. He fights on, um, uh, on April the 9th, that's a week's time, uh, here, here in America, in Kansas, for the North America um, Super Welterweight uh, title. Um, and there's been some talk that he might get a fight in the Northeast, potentially Newcastle, in the next year or so. So all that to say, with his Geordie passport, if he comes back to Newcastle to fight, as long as he's not fighting a, a popular Geordie, uh, he'll get some good support uh, in, in the turn for sure. <laughs> I'm sure of it. I just wanted to talk about, um, I mean, have you written this book over the last year then through lockdown and has it been a help for you? I, mean, I don't know what the situation is like over there where you are, but has this helped you over the last year with, with lockdown? Yeah, I, I, I finished the, uh, the draft of the book, uh, I would say, in early summer last year. So just as, you know, a couple of months of lockdown and i have been writing it over over a couple of years before that, 18 months. Um, but I think lockdown has helped. Well, it's been tough for, for everyone uh, across the world, um, not just in the UK or in Canada, across the world. But I think what happens when there's adversity or suffering, uh, affliction of, of some sort, it recalibrates people as to focus on really what is the meaning of life what things are really important so people you know talk about well really value even more my relationships now because i've not been able to see people i really value my freedoms more now because i've maybe taken certain things for granted i i value my health more because look at all the death that's been around us and, and illness and um and so i think just finishing off the book just in that time is just good for my own uh, focus, but I think it's a timely book as well because you know this this last year or so and the effects that will go on for for quite a bit of time 
this is the kind of book that will it'll make you laugh, it'll make you cry, but it will definitely make you think. Um, and uh, as this past year with the lockdowns and, and, and COVID have done for, for lots of people, and this might just give people a, a framework of thinking about these things and some hope. I hope it's a, a book that you know, encourages people, uh, provokes people to thought, uh, but it, but also people will find it uh, uh, entertaining in the way of just some all the football stuff that's in there. I think you know you've summed it up perfectly there. It definitely gets you thinking about kind of the bigger picture and also the the emotion as well and how important football is. And I guess that's one of my final questions: is when you read, especially your your love for Newcastle United, you you, you see the passion and what it means to you, obviously what it meant to your, your, your grandfather and the, the pride he had to see you pull on that black and white shirt. And yourself, you've been quite vocal on Twitter as well about how things are going at the moment in Newcastle United. And quite honestly, I think if they read a chapter of this book about Newcastle, they might understand a bit more and a bit better about what it means to play for the club and what it means to, to the city and its fans. Yeah, it's one of the reasons uh, that I think uh, football clubs, you need... Uh, you need uh, a thread of older uh, ex-players that are involved in and around the club, whether it's in the coaching or just around the club and in ambassadorial work or what have you, uh, to help players and staff that are coming in. It's so transitory now, in and out, in and out. But to give them that kind of anchor and understanding of what this club really means, you know, uh, my dad's still an ambassador at Charlton. I mean, that's 75 now. But but players that come in and out there over the years, they only have to talk to my dad for 10 minutes and he'll tell them what Charlton's all about and gives them the insight, you know. Um, and so, it, you know, I was fortunate when I went to Newcastle that I had, I knew about Newcastle. It was in my blood. It was in my family and that. Um, Ray Ransom pulled me aside and said, you got to sign for this club if you can. Those kinds of things, but now I see the game has changed so much. There's so much good stuff. The Premier League is so powerful and fast, and some of the great players in the world. But I do think clubs have lost that sense of history, that sense of what it means to a football. Playing football is not all about money, you know. Uh, pl playing football, I would say, isn't even all about all about winning uh, trophies all of the time it's more than that and i try and convey that in the in the book it's about people it's about a city it's about the people of that city and their team and club and you know so now all of a sudden you as a player are involved in something way bigger than yourself that's why football clubs go on longer than players right um it's about that and if you can buy it into that if you can get that and especially somewhere like newcastle that's going to be worth a ton to you on the field and endear you to the fans who are watching uh, off the field. Um, and you get enough players in the team that have got that core, that will drag the rest that are coming in and out uh, along with you. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think these are difficult days at Newcastle. I do hope that I'm looking at the fixtures and thinking, my goodness, I said months ago that... I thought Newcastle no no chance of going down, but I'm looking at the fixtures coming up and thinking, boy, they're such difficult fixtures. I'm looking where the points are going to come from. Uh, I still believe 
that they will, but it's going to be a it's going to go to the wire. And uh, I hope it's not left to a, a last game of the season like the Leicester game uh, in 1992. No, I was just thinking that when I was uh, when I was looking back through the book of the research that that was the one thing that stuck in my mind when I was you know going back over that Leicester game, thinking, goodness me, I do not want to be going through that against Fulham uh, at the end of May. I was just wondering. From a player's perspective, when you are in this position and, you know, the fans are, are on your back, you've got pundits and journalists, you know, putting you down as maybe favourites to get sucked in and then, you know, getting relegated. How easy is it or how difficult is it to, to shut the door on that and just focus on the pitch and on the on the training field and on the, on the Saturday afternoon? It is tough. And, of course, nowadays there's so much more uh, media Ferrari that surrounds... Uh, football, football clubs and, and, and footballers as well and the social media stuff, we didn't have all, all that um, so you really have to try and uh, switch off from that as best you can although it is impossible not to to hear it at all um, and focus on the field and one thing I will say that um, uh, what can happen to players uh, when you're playing you know, you're in a relegation fight and you're not, you're inconsistent at best and, and maybe not having great form personally, is that you can actually, you can look and feel half a yard slower because you kind of, you're second thinking yourself on the, second guessing yourself on the field. So uh, it can look like, oh, well, what's happened to the, they used to be fast. Now they're not. Oh, are they even trying? You know, those kind of things. Um, and it's a confidence thing. Um, but at the same time, it's your profession. So you've got to be able to deal with that, pull through, and you, you've got to show the fans that, uh, that, you're, that you mean it. Like my, like my granddad said, you, that you'll sweat blood for their team no matter what. And if you go down, you're going down fighting. It's one of the things I, uh, I, I don't write this in the book, but I said to my son I, when he was growing up as a, a fighter, I watched him one day and he, he he was winning, winning, winning. And he fought a boy, I think Jake was 14. This boy was like 15, way bigger than him. And I thought, God, he's going to get pasted in the ring here today. And he did. But as he was going down, my boy was throwing punches. And, and I said to him after, I said, that has proved more to me than any of your other victories you're going to be a good fighter. And that's kind of what the fans want to see. Obviously, let's let's hope uh, that it's not a case of fighting and they still go down. But I want to see that fight. If you've got that fight in the team, uh, Newcastle will stay up if you've got that fight. That moment with Jake, I mean, you've written in there as well. Uh, is it about your, your your dad says something similar to you when you you have a little boxer match? Is it, is it at a fun fair or a holiday camp or something like that? So it's yeah. nice how that's kind of, you know, that's kind of moved on a generation as well. Yeah, you learn these lessons, you know, from from your dad or your, you know, your older people than you, and and then you pass them on, and it's just wisdom of life, um, wisdom of life that you can pass on to the next generation and next generation. But it's wisdom of life because it's proven over tens of years and centuries that these principles of life they work, and that's what people tap into. Uh, and that's what they will see from as fans of a football club, and that's why they admire it. That's why we all admire it in people that would show that kind of uh, fight in adversity. Just on the fans, do you think the fact they've not been allowed into stadiums has yeah. 
yeah. affected the way Newcastle play? Because I suppose back when you were playing for Newcastle and you were fighting relegation, they maybe give you that extra boost. Mm. How do you think that's impacted today's current squad? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, it can go for you or against you. If you're playing bad, you hear the boos a bit, a bit more. But certainly, it's. I think it's a... I think it's a negative not to have fans in, in, in the stadium for the players. It's what makes the game. Um, the fans make the game. You know, I, I watched the, the Premier League and it's obviously you get the fans' noise down the f, f, on your TV. There's no fans in the stadium. The players aren't hearing that. So it's like, it looks like a practice match to me. Obviously, they're ramped up against each other. But uh, against uh, with the fans watching, it will go up another notch. So that's what it's all about, and you know, for for Newcastle, it's uh, it is like an extra man, you know, um, playing against. Whenever I played against Newcastle, coming back for Chelsea, I was thinking, boy, this is a place, a difficult place to come, and I'd been took it for granted when I was there, you know, and especially in that promotion season, you just take because they're all behind you. Now you're coming up against that fan set. It's like another another man on the field. It's a force. <laughs> oh, it certainly is. We talked earlier about in the book how you mentioned that instinct of a strike. And of course, today in Newcastle, aside from Callum Wilson, lack goals. I'm just wondering when you watch the games, are you sitting there, you know, if, if Joe Linton misses an opportunity or someone else does, are you sitting there kicking every ball and thinking, you know, what I'd give to be in that position and, and what you would do if you were, you know, six yards out with an opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I don't get to see all the games uh, because of just the restricted uh, access to games that they, they have here. Um, my cousin Simon's always texting me play-by-play uh, play of what's going on. But when I do, uh, yeah, and especially if it is Newcastle, I'll be watching and thinking, yeah, you're twitching, you're thinking what you would do in that situation, um, for sure. Um, and uh, I think that never leaves you as a as a player and then you're a player that just be, it becomes a fan as well. So you are, um, I, I remember speaking to my dad just a couple of months ago, cause you know, he's think of my dad, he started in 1962 at Charlton and he's still involved with the club today. And he's done every job at the, at the club. He's been a player. He's been reserve team coach. He's uh, been first team coach. He's actually been the manager there as well. And now he's ambassador. And he said he watches, like a fan now he's a fan and uh and so you but then when you've played the game at that level you have that even more of an experience of knowing what it's like in in those situations and with a professional eye you 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 know you'll think what you might do uh to stick the ball in the back of the net i mean you play for newcastle under sir john hall and when you speak to sir john hall now he's still as passionate as ever he's still so proud that he owned that club and, okay, they didn't end up winning the title in the end, but, you know, we had some great moments yeah. uh, when you were there and then obviously in the years that followed. And now you look at it and you've got Mike Ashley who seems just to be happy to survive in the Premier League. Does that does that hurt you when you look at the comparison between what Sir John wanted for the club, what he achieved and, and, and what Newcastle have got now? Yeah. Tough business, many but he loved the club and he had, I know he had a couple of uh, feisty arguments with Kevin Keegan early on over money or what have you. Um, and Keegan stood firm on his, his demands there. Um, 
but it, you know, I don't know Mike Ashley uh, personally at all. Uh, but I do know that you know, over the the years, it seems to be that it's just a, a constraint upon the, the the club or the managers that are that are under him, and the fans have got increasingly uh, more frustrated. Um, and so you know, we'll see. Um, will there be a change at the very top level at some point? It seems, I mean, at one point a year ago or just under, I thought that was going to happen. It seemed to be that way. Um, and sometimes you need to, to do that for a, for the sake of the club and a fresh start with a, with a fresh uh, man at the top can provide that. And uh, it seems to me that that's the way that Newcastle's been heading for, in, in that direction for too long for it not to happen eventually. And I think it's what the fans want. No, it definitely is. I mean, we had a, we ran a survey on Chronicle Live earlier uh, this week and 83% said they still wanted the, the, the Saudi-led takeover. A lot less said they were confident of, go, of going through, which shows you where it's at at the moment. Yeah. Uh, just before we got into the final question then, I just wanted to bring this up because this is the last time we met. I look a lot thinner um, than I do now. And it was back in a barber shop uh, in uh. 2017. And I'll tell you what, what I would give to be allowed back into a barbershop right now. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. You see my haircut? Exactly the same. So mine is lockdown proof because you can just do it yourself in, the, in a shower. So uh, yours is a bit more designer. So, But uh, <laughs> I, I wish you well when you do go back to the, to the barber. <laughs> well, that's the first thing I've got booked on April the 12th. At 10.30, I'm getting into the barbershop and then hopefully down the pub for a, a quick pint because they both open on the same day. Um okay. The final question then, when you like, when you read the book, you understand the passion and the, the connection you have to Newcastle United and what it meant to play for them, how proud you were, how proud you still are at being able to, to pull on that black and white shirt and play in front of such passionate fans. What would your message be to the current day squad who are facing a battle for safety? Hmm. That's a great question. Well, you got to remember... Um, despite the, 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 the current uh, form, you've got to kind of take the next few games to the end of the season like a mini season in and of itself. So, so mental job first, you know, you put the other stuff is behind. You can't do anything about it. You can do something about the next few games. Just treat it like a, a mini season and treat every game like it's a cup final. And secondly, you've got to remember who you play for and who you represent. And, um, you know, it's Newcastle United Football Club. This is a premiership football club. It is a club that deserves to be challenging and uh, for cup competitions and, and up challenging for the, you know, for Champions League places. Uh, that, that's Newcastle United Football Club. That's what the size we're talking about. This is the fan base that we're talking about. Start focusing on, on those two things. The mini season, every game like a cup final plus who you represent and what, what it means to those fans, that in and of itself should be enough to, to get you the points you need and to make you play out of your skin and beyond yourself, no matter how you've played for the past few months of the season, beyond yourself uh, to get the results that you need to, to, to keep this, this club up uh, and then a platform for next season for potential change. So that's what I'd be saying to, to those players in, in, in the dressing room as each game comes up. Um, and then with that, I believe that there's, 
they'd have enough to to to, to keep Newcastle up. Well, fingers crossed they do. Um, well, Gavin, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. The book, A Greater Glory from Pitch to Pulpit, comes out on May the 7th, so you can you can pre-order that on Amazon right now. I'd really do recommend you go and do it. There's some lovely stories that we haven't spoken about tonight, just simply because they made me laugh um, reading them. So I recommend every one of you guys watching or listening um, to go and buy the book, and you can share that emotion as well. It's been a pleasure to have you on the Everything is Black and White podcast, Gavin. Thanks, Andrew. It's been great.